1: Some years later, an alliance will be formed between the King of the North and the King of the South. The daughter of the King of the South will be given in marriage to the King of the North to secure the alliance, but she will lose her influence over him, and so will her father. She will be abandoned along with her supporters, but when one of her relatives becomes King of the South, he will raise an army and enter the fortress of the King of the North and defeat him.
0: Daniel, chapter 11, verses 6 and 7, New Living Translation Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to another episode of Anchored by Truth. Today, we are continuing our look at the intertestamental period, the 400-plus year period between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro. Author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. RD, today we're going into our fourth episode in this series. Can you give us a brief recap of where we are and why we are talking about a period of history when no books were being added to the Bible?
2: Well, greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners, and thank you for being with us today. So, let's start with the second question first. The reason that we thought it was important to take a close look at this intertestamental period. It's the same reason, really, that we do everything on Anchored by Truth, because we want to help listeners increase their understanding of and their confidence in the Bible. The Bible contains the content of the Christian faith. The Bible contains God's special revelation to the world. We can know that God exists, and we can know that God is a God of immeasurable power and wisdom by just looking at the created order. But the amount of information that we are going to be able to derive about God just by looking at the created order is going to, of necessity, be limited.
0: Theologians call the knowledge we get about God by our observation of the created order general revelation. This knowledge is general in that it's available to everyone, but it's also general in his content. By looking at galaxies and stars, we can know that whoever created them is a being of immense power and strength. We can look at the unmatched complexity of a cell and see that the Creator must have unimaginable wisdom and precision. But we won't know that God sent His only begotten Son to die for our sins just by staring at the stars or looking through a microscope. In order to know that God has a special plan and purpose for His creation, we need His special revelation. And that is contained in the Bible.
2: Right. You know, it's not too strong a statement to say that if someone doesn't know what the Bible says, that any faith they possess, even though it may be genuine and it may be sincere, the content of that faith is going to be incomplete. At a minimum, that is not the kind of faith that God wants His
0: children to have. The Good News Translation of the Bible says, quote, Faith comes from hearing the good news about Christ, unquote. Today, we only hear the good news about Christ by either reading or listening to the revelation that comes from the Bible.
2: Yes. So, we need to read and meditate on the Bible in order to develop our faith. But just about any honest reader is going to tell you that the first time that they probably read the Bible, especially the first time that they read certain parts of the Bible, there are going to be lots of things in the Bible that they didn't understand on their first reading.
0: Quite possibly, things such as our opening scripture. In our opening scripture, we heard about the King of the North and the King of the South, and them trying to form an alliance. We also heard about the King of the South sending his daughter to marry the King of the North, But then the daughter gets abandoned. I don't think it's much of a stretch for many of us to wonder what all this has to do with coming to salvation through Christ. I'm sure you're going to say, that's why we're doing this series.
2: Well, I don't have to say it, because you just did. We're doing this series on the intertestamental period for two reasons. First, because studying that period of time, that period in history, helps us make sense of scripture passages like the one that we heard from Daniel, chapter 11, in our opening scripture. Let's remember that the Bible is all about the grand saga of creation, fall, and redemption. Now in the Bible, creation and the fall, those occur within the first three chapters of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. So the rest of the Bible, the balance of Genesis and the next 65 books of the Bible, That's all about the unfolding saga of redemption. Well, because that saga of redemption occurred and occurs during the real history of the world, in order to understand the saga of redemption, we need to understand some of the history of the world. Well, the second reason that we're doing this series is because studying the history of the intertestamental period actually helps us increase our confidence that the Bible is the Word of God. Because there were a large number of prophecies that were made during the Old Testament that were actually fulfilled during the intertestamental period.
0: Fulfilled prophecy helps demonstrate that the Bible truly has a supernatural origin. So that's part of what we want to do during the study of the intertestamental period. We want to show that there are numerous prophecies made in the Old Testament period that will fulfill during this time. We believe that seeing the precision of the prophecies and the precision of the fulfillment should increase our confidence in the fact that the Bible is the Word of God.
2: Correct. The seemingly mundane facts of history connect to the Bible's spiritual messages about salvation and heaven in a very direct way. By reading the Bible and studying history, we can see that the Bible contains a large volume of prophecies, hundreds of which have been fulfilled. So, seeing this large body of fulfilled prophecy, this solidifies our confidence that the Bible is God's Word. So, if we can trust God's Word because we can see all of these fulfilled prophecies, well, then we know that we can trust God's Word also in the matters that we can't see, the matters that are supernatural.
0: So, where are we then in our intertestamental series? Obviously today, you want to talk about the specific prophecy that's contained in Daniel chapter 11 verses 6 and 7. How does that fit in with what we've covered so far in the series?
2: Well, in our first episode in this series, we saw that there is a gap of hundreds of years between the close of the Old Testament canon and the writing of the first books of the New Testament. In our second episode, we saw that at the start of the intertestamental period, The Jews had returned to their ancestral homeland after an extended period of exile. But we also saw that at that time, they were not truly an independent kingdom. At the start of the intertestamental period, the Jews were just a vassal state of the Persian Empire. Now, notwithstanding that the Jews did not have a truly independent country, even though they truly weren't an independent people at that point, we still saw that the Jews had considerable reasons for hope, because everything that the Jews had experienced up to the start of the intertestamental period had been consistent with prophecies that they had been given. They had good reasons for hope, because they still had prophecies at that time that were unfulfilled of a coming deliverance. Now, in our third episode, we saw that as the intertestamental period progressed, more and more prophecies that had been given also continued to come true.
0: Now, during the intertestamental period, The Jews did not know that that was the period they were in. At that point, the Jews had no idea that someday the arrival of the Messiah would inaugurate an entirely new part of God's special revelation. But what you're saying is that the Jews could still continue to maintain a hopeful expectancy, because even though there were no new prophets giving them additional messages from God, they could see that God was active in their nation, fulfilling prophecies he had already given. So. What is the significance of the discussion in Daniel chapter 11 of the Kings of the North and the South?
2: We covered last time that the Jews had been in exile in Babylon, but they had been allowed to return back to Palestine after the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Medes and the Persian. Now, the Persian Empire, in turn, fell to the Greeks, who were being led by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great died fairly young. He was only 32 years old when he died. Well, the sons that Alexander the Great had were far too young to take over for him upon his death. So a power struggle began, and it took about 20 years or so before that power struggle finally ended. And when the power struggle did end, four of Alexander's former generals decided that they would divide his empire. Now, those generals were Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander and Lysimachus. Well, the Bible is really only concerned with the lives and successors of Ptolemy and Seleucus.
0: Because Ptolemy took over Egypt and Seleucus took over Syria, and Palestine, of course, lies between Egypt and Syria. Because the Bible always designates its directions using Israel as the point of reference, Ptolemy and his successors would become the kings of the south. Egypt is south of Israel. Seleucus and his successors would become the kings of the north. Syria is north of Israel. So, in our passage, when it refers to the king of the south, we're really talking about an Egyptian ruler. And when it refers to the king of the north, we're talking about a Syrian ruler, right?
2: Right. So, chapter 11 of the book of Daniel is devoted to a description of the struggle that would occur between the Egyptian rulers, the kings of the south, and the Syrian rulers, the kings of the north. And a lot of that struggle included who was going to control the territory of Israel. And so all of chapter 11 of Daniel occurs chronologically in history during the intertestamental period. So chapter 11 of the book of Daniel is a very key part to us understanding the importance of this intertestamental
0: period. Again, just as a quick refresher, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, was written around 450 B.C., Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire in 334 BC. So, it was more than a hundred years after Malachi wrote that the Jews saw many of the events of the prophecies of the book of Daniel come true.
2: And, since Daniel had written his book about a hundred years earlier than Malachi wrote, A total of more than 200 years had elapsed between Daniel receiving his prophecy and the inauguration in history of the events that are described in chapter 11. But as we're going to see, the precision of the prophecies that were given to Daniel in chapter 11 is just absolutely amazing. And the precision of the fulfillment of those prophecies certainly defies the ability of any human being to have been able to make those prophecies unless that human being had received a supernatural revelation from God.
0: Okay, let's get started and see how amazingly God is able to act sovereignly through both prophecy and history. For purposes of this exposition, we're going to use the Good News Translation version of the same scripture. In the Good News Translation version, the first line of verse 6 says, After a number of years, the king of Egypt will make an alliance with the king of Syria. What is this all about?
2: Well, the after a number of years simply means that the events that occurred in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 11 did not occur during the lives of Ptolemy or Seleucus. Those were the generals who had immediately taken over after Alexander. But instead, the events of verses 6 and 7 occurred during the reign of their successors. Now, Ptolemy's successor was called Ptolemy Philadelphus, and Seleucus' successor was called Antiochus Theos. Theos, of course, just means God. Now, in the part of our verse that says an alliance will be formed means that these two successor kings would make an attempt to unite the two kingdoms more closely by a marriage between the royal families. You know, all of Alexander's former generals had seen that bitter power struggle that occurred in the wake of Alexander's death. And obviously, at that point in history, there were already tensions between these two royal families. And again, as we said, part of that tension between these two royal families was over who would control the boundary territory between those two kingdoms. And of course, that boundary territory included the part of the world today that we know as Palestine.
0: And that boundary territory included the territory of Israel. So, in an attempt to head off a protracted war, these two kings decided to try and form an alliance. It was, and is, common among monarchies to try and create such alliances by intermarrying with one another. There's been some pretty famous attempts at such alliances. Henry VIII of England's marriage to Catherine of Aragon of Spain springs to mind. Those attempts didn't work out so well. It certainly didn't for Catherine.
2: Yes, and as we will see, it did not turn out all that well in this case for the bride either.
0: In this case, the bride was the daughter of the king of Egypt. Our text says that the king of Egypt will give the king of Syria, quote, his daughter in marriage, unquote. Who was the daughter?
2: Well, the daughter was Berenice, the daughter of the king of Egypt. Now, Philadelphus had agreed that Berenice would marry the king of the north, Antiochus Theo. So, Philadelphus had agreed that he would give his daughter Berenice in marriage to Antiochus. And part of the reason that Philadelphus agreed to the marriage was in order to bring a war between the two to an end. Philadelphus wanted to bring peace to Egypt, and it would have also brought peace to Syria. Well, Philadelphus was more ambitious than just wanting to achieve peace. He not only wanted to restore an immediate peace between the two kingdoms, but he was hoping that ultimately an alliance between the two kingdoms would be of benefit to his kingdom, the kingdom of Egypt, the kingdom of the south because one of the conditions under which Philadelphus gave his daughter to Antiochus in marriage was that Antiochus would basically divorce his former wife, Laodicea. And another condition was that the children of that former wife, between Antiochus and Laodicea, would be excluded from the line of succession. So in that way, Philadelphus was hoping that the kingdom of Syria might one day become a part of Egypt if Berenice had any children with Antiochus.
0: But that didn't work out, did it? Our scripture goes on to say, quote, But the alliance will not last, and she, her husband, her child, and the servants who went with her, will be killed, unquote. This is starting to sound an awful lot like Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine. Henry abandoned Catherine for Anne Boleyn.
2: And in the case of our scripture passages... Ptolemy Philadelphus died two years after the marriage between his daughter and the king of Syria. Now, when Ptolemy Philadelphus died, Antiochus returned to his former wife, Laodicea. Well, when Antiochus returned to his former wife, naturally, he had to get rid of Berenice. But that didn't actually work out so well for Antiochus, because after Antiochus returned back to his former wife, his former wife murdered him because she did not want to risk being sent away again. And by then, Laodice obviously knew that Antiochus was a fickle husband.
0: Let me guess what happened next. Laodice wasn't all that fond of the woman who had replaced her, so she decided to get rid of her as well.
2: Well, as they say, bingo. Laodicea and the Syrian court officers conspired to plan the death of Berenice and her child. So, Berenice got wind of the plan, and so she quite sensibly fled with her child or children to the city of Daphne. But, in Daphne, the Syrian officers caught up with her, and they killed her there, along with her children. Now, notice that our biblical text also says that the servants who went with her will also all be killed. You know, it was common in those days that when a bride was sent from one royal family to marry into another, that the bride would take along some of the servants who had, before the marriage, been taking care of her. Well, in some cases, those servants had actually been caring for the bride since birth. So, taking along these servants would not only make settling into her new life easier... But the bride also knew that she could trust those servants, whereas she would have had real questions about any servants who were appointed to care for her in her new setting.
0: And sometimes, those servants included one or more who would send reports back to the king or the royal family of the country she had left, a set of highly placed eyes and ears in the country to which the bride had been sent. And of course, as we'll see next, the old queen killing the new queen, her child, and her servants didn't end the matter. Verse 7 of Daniel, chapter 11, says, quote, Soon afterward, one of her relatives will become king. He will attack the army of the king of Syria, enter their fortress, and defeat them, unquote. So what is this verse about? Well,
2: Berenice was not the only child of Ptolemy Philadelphus. Berenice had a brother who was called Ptolemy Erigates. Well, as soon as her brother found out what was happening to his sister, Eurigates gathered an army together, and he went north to try to rescue his sister. Unfortunately, Eurigates was too late to save his sister's life, but in connection with an army that he had recruited from Asia Minor as part of the rescue plan, Eurigates decided to avenge Berenice's death. So Eurigates not only conquered Syria, but he also took over a number of other territories that had been under Seleucid control, and part of those territories included Israel. In fact, if Eurgates had not had to return home to put down a seditious revolt, he probably would have conquered all of the Seleucid-controlled territory.
0: But he didn't, and the war between the Ptolemies and the Seleucuses would continue for another hundred years or so, with Israel caught in between. Ultimately, a particularly evil Syrian king would come to the throne who would desecrate the Jewish temple which is sometimes referred to as the abomination that causes desolation. Some commentators believe the abomination of desolation might prefigure the Antichrist, who will appear just before Jesus' return.
2: Yes. And this Syrian king is known in history as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. Well, the Jews would become so outraged by the behavior of Epiphanes that they revolted and eventually the Jews of that time were able to throw off all the foreign rulers that they had had and they remained independent, more or less free, for a period of several decades. But despite this period of self-rule, it's important to remember that by that time, Israel had been under Greek control for almost two centuries. Think about that. Israel had been under Greek control for over 200 years. Because remember that even though the Ptolemies and the Seleucids were warring for control of Israel, both sides of the war were in fact Greek. And so when Alexander had conquered the Middle East, he didn't just bring his soldiers, he also brought the Greek language and the Greek culture. And you will often hear people refer to Hellenism or Hellenization. So that refers to the transfer of the Greek culture throughout the portion of the world that the Greeks had conquered during Alexander's lifetime. During this period of time, the spread of the Greek language and the Greek culture was still going on throughout the Middle East and through Western Asia. So despite the fact that there were wars, battles, etc. being fought, that did not stop the spread of the Greek language and culture throughout the territories that Alexander had conquered.
0: And this Hellenization dramatically affected life within Israel, didn't it? So that's part of what we'd like to talk about in our next episode of Anchored by Truth. But what do you want to emphasize as we close out for today?
2: Well, in our previous episodes in this series on Anchored by Truth, we have seen some important truths. You know, God wasn't providing any additional special revelation during the intertestamental period, but that doesn't mean that God wasn't active in superintending the unfolding of history to achieve his purposes.
0: So this tells us that even during seasons of our lives when we may feel like we don't see a lot happening, God is still in control. As the apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, quote, "I am sure that God, who began this good work in you, We'll carry it on until it is finished, on the day of Christ Jesus." God continues to work with us, in us, for us. Even in those times, it seems like he is being very quiet in our lives.
2: Exactly. God never sleeps, and God never slumbers. God never leaves his children. During the intertestamental period, there was a lot going on that affected the Jews, and frankly, most of it was beyond their control. Empires were changing. Kings were coming and going. Palace intrigues were transpiring, and those intrigues would affect their lives. But God was directing it all in such a way that He preserved His people. During the Intertestamental period, the Jews could see that, just as had been foretold in the Old Testament, prophecies were being fulfilled so they could see that God's hand, God's providence, was still in control of them, their land, and their lives. And those prophecies had been given uniquely to the Jews. The Jews knew that they were the custodians of God's unique word. So even though decades were passing, centuries were passing, the Jews could still see prophecies being fulfilled exactly as those prophecies had been given to them.
0: In our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we saw that God sometimes gave prophecies that affected entire empires and regions of the world. God is the God of the seemingly big and important. But today we saw that God also gave prophecies that pertain to specific individuals, in this case the daughter of an ambitious king and her brother. God isn't just the God of empires and world history. He is also the God for individual people and individual destinies.
2: Yes, God knows each of us personally. And even though it seems a little trite to say it, God has a plan for each of us personally. The key is whether or not we want to see God's will come to fruition in our lives, or whether we want to be like Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden when the Bible tells us that the first sin occurred because Adam and Eve desired to be like God. There can only be one Lord in anyone's life. The Lord of your life can either be God Almighty, or it can be a lesser being, and all of us are lesser beings. And that's one of the lessons that comes so powerfully to us by watching the prophecies that were continuing to be fulfilled during the intertestamental period.
0: God can rule in our lives, or we can. God is not going to share His throne with anyone. The tragic part is when we think that we can do a better job than God. And it's not that God wants to take away our free will. Far from it. God wants to enable us to experience His best. But as you say in our Christmas epic poem, The Golden Tree, Kamari's Quest, God can only help us when we set our own power aside. The question ultimately is whether we want to experience all that we can provide or all that God can provide.
2: Absolutely. And that's what we see so clearly as we studied the Bible and history. The Jews went into captivity because they refused to honor God's commandments, especially the first commandment, which is to have no other gods before Him. Well, during the captivity, a great many faithful Jews learned that lesson, and as promised, God returned them to their homeland. Well, also as God promised, God punished Babylon. God punished the nation that had exiled the Jews. And ultimately, God would use a succession of world powers to continue to prepare the world for the arrival of Jesus. Chapter 11 of the book of Daniel was written about 200 years before any of the events described in chapter 11 ever occurred in history. But in time, those events did occur exactly as they had been prophesied. God, as only God can do, had just recorded those events 200 years ahead of time. So this is a powerful confirmation of the supernatural origin of the Bible. And the Bible's character today is no different than it was when any of its various human authors first prepared their individual records. It's just that today we have the complete revelation of God. And that complete revelation clearly tells us that just as Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, Jesus is coming back again. It's just that the first time Jesus came, He came as the suffering servant. But when Jesus comes back the next time, he's not coming back as a suffering servant. He's coming back as a conquering lion.
0: Amen. This sounds like a great time for a prayer. Since all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect plan for our lives, today let's listen to a prayer of corporate confession, knowing that God has promised that as we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them.
1: Prayer of Corporate Confession Father, perfect in justice, holy in all ways, we stand before you to declare that we know you are a great, powerful, and just God. Before time began marking the rise, decline, and coming renewal of creation, you established the laws to govern all seasons and creatures. Your laws are perfect, because you are perfect. Lord, we acknowledge today that we have sinned and fallen short of your expectations. We know that we have done this of our own volition, that our transgressions are not caused by anything that you have done or failed to do. As you forgive us, help us to freely forgive those who offend us when they ask for pardon. Let us embrace our brothers and sisters with repentant hearts as readily as you embrace us. We can only do so by knowing the gracious love that you brought to us when Christ came and died for us. He tore apart the veil between your people and you, sent the Spirit to refresh our souls, and so it is in his precious name that we ask for mercy, pardon, and a readiness to serve you. Amen. Amen.
0: We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where
2: We're we're not famous, famous, but our boss is.